God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the crisp weather, the um, beginning of relief from the heat of a Texas summer. We thank you for the, the clear weather. The, the rain that was needed is done for a while, hopefully, and we get some crisp days that remind us of your goodness and your kindness to us and the beauty you've created on the earth. We pray for this time together that your word would be instructive to us, help us in our pursuit of holiness, in our pursuit of Christ, and the um, stirring up of desire, hopefully by your spirit, through your word, of loving him more, prizing him above all things. Give us wisdom as we talk through this passage. It is strange to our ears, uh, but we trust in your goodness and your wisdom in, in bringing it to us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we've been in Numbers 5 for a while. And remember our discussion last time. Um, this chapter can be outlined really in three sections. Verses 1 through 4 go over physical impurities that can defile you and require you to be put out of the camp. Remember that? Remember what the physical infirmities were? Leprous, discharge, or dead. Okay, that's a very succinct list and very accurate. Leprosy, a discharge or disease of some you know, personal nature, and, uh, and death, touching a dead body, caused you to be put out of the camp. Why was that a big deal? There's some, there's some reasons for that, right? There's a practical reason. Leprosy is what? Contagious—that's the first thing I think of. Don't you know? Don't touch them, right? Uh, the disease that we had—we had—I do kind of like this little deal here. Uh, the disease that uh, is in view in the text is also somewhat contagious. Death—the uh, bacteria from dead bodies—is uh, contagious. Th these are people without antibiotics, right? So there's a very practical element to this. There's a there's a a larger picture too, right? There's a theological issue. What is a theological issue in these things? Supposed to be a holy people set apart. Yeah, they're a holy people set apart. Who's in their midst? God. God is in their midst. The whole camp we've seen is is surrounding the the central um, shrine. The central focal point of the whole thing is the tabernacle, where which is where God dwells. And so He is holy. He's calling them to be holy. And we have a physical, symbolic. Uh, uh, thing here of putting things out of the camp that are part of the curse of the fall, right? There's uh, sickness, disease, and, and death are part of the curse of the fall. So there are obvious physical reasons to isolate those with these afflictions. The theological reason is, is pretty obvious as well. God is holy and present, and therefore people who live with Him are required to live a certain way. There are conditions. There, there are things that he requires to be in his presence and not be in his presence. So these laws that we're going through teach us about who God is and what he's done. Likewise, verses 5 through 10 recount certain moral offenses that can defile you. Remember those? The, the, the sins that are common to man. And he, he provides a way of restitution for those things. Um, but it points to the heart. It points to actions that defile the individual and thereby defile the camp. And they've got to be dealt with in the way that God prescribes. Our passage today continues that theme. But i got to tell you, it's bizarre. It's a weird one. 
verses uh, uh, 11 through 31, deal with tensions in the home, right? They deal with tensions in the home that are caused either by adultery or by the suspicion of adultery. But there's no evidence of it. How do you deal with that? Um, these things are all grouped here because all of these things defile the camp. And, and, and one of the things that we've seen again and again and again in Numbers is when you live with God, there are certain things that He requires. And because that's, that's just applicable in the Old Testament, you know, we don't really take that and apply that to us. These are just, we're just studying history here. Um, are God's laws beneficial for human flourishing? Certainly. Yeah. Are God's laws good and true? Well, of course, we see that even referenced in the New Testament. Uh, ultimately, though, the reason we are to pursue holiness is God is holy. God is holy. He says again and again and again, it's said in the Old Testament and the New, be holy for I am holy. That's why we pursue holiness. And so it's not like that that's, that that's not hidden. I mean, that's the stated purpose of a lot of these laws. Um, all right. The major point of chapter 5 is that these things defile the individual, and more significantly, they defile the camp of God's people like a contagion. The whole question is, what does it mean to live with God in His presence? What is required? And so that's the big overarching point of chapter 5. What does it mean to live with God? What is required? So let's look at chapter 5, starting in verse 11. I'm going to read the whole thing because I want you to hear the whole thing, and that way all of your eyebrows can raise and you can have that inquisitive look like I did when I read it. All right. Verse 11, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband <clears throat> and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. Verse 16. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place, her, place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then... The priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, 
And if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain, and, the womb, and her womb shall swell and her thighs shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law. In cases of jealousy, when a wife, though, her husband's, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. What in the world is going on here? What do you do with that? What is this? What is, what, first of all, what strikes you about the passage? Let's just do a one-to-one -one on it. What strikes you about this passage? The methods. The methods. <laughs> now, this seems to me very mystical. Uh, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. the, I, See if they float. It <laughs> seems that way, doesn't it? Um, let's set the stage. First, what's the problem? What's the problem with this? What, what, what is the issue at stake here? Potential adultery. Potential adultery. Now, we went through Leviticus and Exodus many moons ago, and we talked about adultery there, right? Starting with the Ten Commandments, should be, you should not commit adultery, right? Started there, and then in Leviticus, it says what is the penalty for adultery? Death. Death. Based on what? What do you have to have to make the case that someone has committed adultery? Witness. Witnesses. Evidence. There's presumption of innocence until you have evidence. Right? It's amazing to me. Only in the Middle East. Only in the Middle East. Yeah, because that worked out so well. All right, so it's amazing to me. This is something we keep coming back to. And, and this really is unique to the Hebrew Scripture. Because in that day, this is what is known as, it's very similar to, culturally, what we, what we call a, a, a trial of ordeal. Um, in, in ancient Near East culture, a lot of times, if you had a, if you had a jealous husband, if you had a, 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 a suspicion of adultery and you had a jealous husband, no, no evidence of it, the laws of Hammurabi, Mari, all those stuff, the culturally what they would do is they'd say, well... 
if the husband accuses you of this, here is a pot of boiling water. Thrust your hand into it. If you pull it out and the flesh is okay, then you must be innocent. Or here is an iron rod that's hot that we've left in the fire for a while. Grab onto it, and if there's any flesh left on your hand, then you must be innocent. Otherwise, we'll kill you because of adultery. What's that presumption? Guilty. It's a presumption of guilt. So this, this is taking a cultural issue. Look at what he's doing to this. Let's just, let's just go through it piece by piece and we'll get to the whole thing. I, I'm actually pretty impressed by this. Um, a husband suspects and accuses his wife of infidelity whether or not she's actually guilty. That's the, that's the context that we have. How does the text describe the guilty wife? What does he say in verses 11 through 15? What is it, how does he describe the, the, the accused wife? If she's guilty, how does he describe it? How does he describe her? She's defiled herself. She's defiled herself. She, she, uh, some of the language says goes, she goes astray, right? Or she breaks faith with her husband. The two ways it describes it in the ESV. Um, if she goes astray, that language there is very, it's a rare Hebrew verb, but it references in Proverbs um, the, the actions of a harlot. Okay, so we have a pretty clear how God views adultery here, right? The, the other is breaks faith. That is a verb that's often used, replete in the Old Testament, with how God describes His people breaking faith with Him. It's the same kind of, what does that tell you? One, God views adultery or sexual purity, I guess we should just broaden it a little bit, very seriously. Doing this, is seen as harlotry in his mind. And that's how the text describes it. The other is, it's not just physical acts. There's a spiritual component here. God views our faithfulness to him this way, right? So you see that in the language. Um, all right, so infidelity here takes the form of intercourse, or it, it also says lies with her sexually. You need two witnesses. To, to have the crime of adultery punishable. We don't have two witnesses here. Um, just a suspicious husband. What's a husband to do? Barley. <laughs> uh, what is it? What does it say he's to do? Eleven through fifteen. What does it say he's to do? Make her disappear. Is that in there? No. What does it say he's to do? Take her to the priest. What does that tell you? What does it tell you about the presumption that God puts here? Because I'll tell you, when I first read this, I mean, that's a very chauvinistic passage. Why, why wouldn't this apply to both? Right? Even if you're not sure, you still make reparations for the... You, you still pay. You still you, you do everything in your power to make it right. Okay, so to, to restore the relationship. Restore the relationship. I see what you're saying. Okay, yes. So, but in other cultures around, he gets mad. He has a suspicion. She disappears. Mm -hmm. Where'd Sarah go? Oh, she was here last week. Ask the husband. I don't know. 
She's got, what is he required to do as an Israelite? Bring some barley. Handle it. <laughs> Bring some barley. <laughs> That's a good southern way of saying it. Uh, he's required to bring her before the priest. Is that private or public? Public. Where is she to be brought? What does it say? Says to the priest. To the priest? To stand before the Lord at the tent of meeting. In front of the tent of meeting. Where's the tent of meeting? In the middle of the camp. Times square, baby. Times square, you're killing me. Alright. The husband is to bring his wife to the priest with a grain offering. Now, a grain offering, as we saw in Leviticus 2, those many moons ago, is a symbol. It is often mixed with oil and some spice, frankincense here. And it's a symbol, being mixed with the oil and the frankincense is a symbol of the joy inherent in giving an offering to the Lord. Why do you think that the text specifically says, don't mix oil and frankincense with this? Why do you think? This is not a happy occasion. A jealous husband, suspicious, is not a happy occasion. So it, he brings... Now, this is an offering of remembrance, it's called here in the text. Uh, another way would be, um, uh, some have translated this as an offering to cause to know. Why would that be a, an, an issue? An offering that causes to know or brings knowledge. What's at stake? What's the issue? We don't know. We only have a suspicion. We bring an offering to cause to know. Who's going to cause to know? Who, ma who makes it known? God does, right? It's not, let me thrust my hand in the boiling water and I'll make it known. It's not, let me grab the hot iron and make it known. It's not, my husband's suspicion is presumed to be right and I disappear, make it known. It's God making it known. So an offering is brought to God that is serious, that's not joyful. There, there's a suspicious thing here. Um, the, the situation here is, is, is kind of sketchy, so it highlights the suspicion that's here, whether it's justified or not. Uh, what's being remembered? What does it say? There's an offering of remembrance. What is being, re being remembered? What does it say? Jealousy. Jealousy, or the, another way is, it, it may be said is iniquity, a remembrance of iniquity. You see that in there? Who's iniquity? The man. Huh? The man? The man? For maybe being unrighteously jealous of his wife? It could also be the guilt of the wife here, it could be remembering or making known her. Because what's going to happen? If she comes out of this innocent and without blame, which is the way it reads at the end, she comes out innocent without blame, who has egg on his face? This man who's falsely accusing his wife, who's bringing false testimony to, I mean, that's, that's a commandment issue, right? So this is a way to publicly deal with this. If she goes through this stuff, at the end of it, he's like, I mean, the, the, the presumption is he sees her go through this public thing. He's going he's gonna to finally say, well, what? I, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. You know, that's the, that's the deal. All right. 
Um, it was common to have a test like this in other cultures. Um, what are the three elements? What are the three elements of the test given here in this passage? Let's look at verses 16, starting in verse 16. What are the three elements? We've already said one. The priest places the woman so that she is standing before Yahweh in front of the tent of meeting. Does that make it serious to her? I mean, this is the God who fried Nadab and Abihu, right? Very public. Um, all right. This gets real. What's the second thing he does? He makes a potion. <laughs> this is weird to me. He makes a potion. He gets, a, he gets holy water and what? Dust. Dust. From the floor. Mud losing it. Mud. <laughs> Holy mud. Dust. Now, when you hear about something, somebody ingesting dust, what imagery does that conjure up? Sneezing. <laughs> okay, I mean biblical oh, imagery. Uh, the 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 cash cow. They did that whenever they ground up the cash cow. They had to drink the gold dust, right? Oh, yeah. What else? Thinking further back. Adam was formed from dust. Adam was formed from dust. <laughs> That's about right. Go a little forward. The snake will eat dust all of his life. That's part of the curse, right? So here we have a symbol of the curse. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, a symbol of the curse. A symbol of punishment from the, the cash cow. And he brings it from the floor of the sanctuary and puts it in holy water. Um, all right. Finally, what's the last thing? What's the last thing he does? Rapunzel? Yes, he lets down her hair. Rapunzel, Rapunzel. And this actually begins the ceremony, the ritual that's involved here. The priest unbinds the hair of the woman. Why would he do that? It's kind of weird. It's not saying that she's unmarried or something, because she's supposed to wear a hat to be... This is... I don't know about all that, but... Um, Humility. There's a a, a a a mourning, a symbol of mourning of letting down the hair. When we say let down your hair, we usually mean relax. For them, it was a sign of mourning. I haven't been able to let my hair down in a long time. I let mine down too far. <laughs> too far. Just kind of kind of jumped off. I'm too spiritual. <laughs> I'm too humble in mourning. I'm always sad. Um, okay. The priest is then to hold the waters of bitterness in his hand. And some commentators say that the, the waters of bitterness should be translated to waters which bless and bring the curse, indicating that the judgment of the woman is still in doubt. Still don't know. I look at verse 19. Notice the content of this oath. Notice the content of, the, of this oath. What are the parts of this curse? What, what happens if she's guilty? <laughs> Some weird language here, isn't there? First of all, she does. She becomes what among the people? She becomes a. What does that mean? Yeah, don't want to be around her. Everybody knows it. She becomes a byword of what of what not to be. You know, uh, and she becomes the the symbol of the bad wife here, right? This is the this is held up in front of God and everybody. She's wrong. She sinned. 
Um, what else does it say? Physically, what does it say? What is part of the curse here if she's guilty? Swell up when I thought What does that mean? It's idiomatic language, I'll just tell you. It's idiomatic language dealing with the fact that God will somehow, bring, drinking in this curse, what, we've talked about this before, I think in Genesis, a long time ago. When something is ingested, when something is swallowed, in ancient Near East culture, you absorb the traits and the benefits or the characteristics of that thing. And if she's swallowing the curse, she becomes accursed, Right? And it's shown here, what is, in this culture, what is, the, what is the, the, the greatest good that a woman can do? Bear children. Bear children. And so the curse becomes one who cannot conceive, who cannot, who cannot bear children. And some have argued that she can't, even, she can't even engage in activity to get to that point because of the way that the physicality of the thing works here. So she becomes a curse both as, a, as a, a warning to the people and she becomes a curse in her physical ability what, uh, of not being able to have children. So there's two parts to that. Um, and she's to bring this down on herself. This is a self-maledictory curse. I mean, she's, she's bringing it on herself and says, Amen, Amen. What do we know when you repeat something twice in Hebrew? It's important. It's serious. So she's to bring this down. All right, so after the oath, here's where it gets real. After the oath... It's already real. Okay. <laughs> Let me just say, here's where it gets weird. <laughs> after, the, after the oath, what is the next part of the ritual? What's going on here? Writing down some magic words. <laughs> well, is, are they magic words? What is he writing down? Just what happened. What does it say? He's probably writing down the curse that he was just given that she has to repeat, right? So she, she repeats the oath and says, Amen, Amen. Then the priest writes down the oath that she just took on a parchment. The ESV translates it book, and I guess that's okay. I, I like scroll better uh, because it has the idea of it being parchment paper. And what's going on there? The priest writes the curse on the scroll, and then what does he do with it? What does he do with it? He washes off the ink into the water. He washes the writing off into the water. That's probably something that's common to do. Uh, I mean, it, it, it would come off with water because it's parchment, right? And the, the language actually says, the scroll. So it's thought by many scholars that there was one scroll that was used for this purpose. We have no record of this ever being used in any of Scripture, this, this passage, ever being actually done. It's just here. But apparently they had a scroll, a specific scroll, for, for this ritual. So the priest writes the curse on the scroll, then washes the words into the waters of bitterness in the earthen jar. Um, what does that tell us? What does that tell us? That's just a weird thing to wash words into a, into a water thing. What, what is he telling us? It's symbolic of what? Of Christ washing us clean. Okay, that's a little bit of a leap. What would be symbolic of right here? That's a leap ahead. I, I, not, but, but what's it symbolic of here? Of washing whatever happened of her away. 
Okay? What, what, other, what are some other thoughts on that? Her words are testifying against her. Her words are testifying. She's about to drink this. Mm. What's she drinking? Her words. The dust and the words, right? Where did the words come from? Who gave her the words to say? God did. So the, the words of God that she has repeated and brought onto herself are being washed into this vessel full of holy water. We don't know where the holy water came from. Some say it came from a labor in the, in the tabernacle. Others say it was... No, I mean, I, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? All right, so you have then this, this water that has the words of God uh, with this curse that she has repeated and, and brought on herself, washed into it, and then she's supposed to drink it. She drinks it. Um, so what happens when the guilty woman swallows the waters of bitterness? She absorbs the bitterness, and she herself becomes bitter or unfruitful. The priest also then will wave the grain offering of knowledge or of, of you know, memorial, symbolically showing that there's what was hidden is about to be revealed. So if she's guilty, this is going to happen to her. If she's not, what happens? She can conceive. She can conceive. She can have kids. Nothing physical happens. Nothing physical happens. So get living it up to God. So do you see, later on in the New Testament, when we see women who are barren, mm. they're cursed of God. Elizabeth and, and uh, John the Baptist's wife, uh, mother, uh, well, yeah, uh, his mother, this isn't a Greek tragedy, his, his mother was barren, right? She was, uh, you also see that with uh, Samuel's mom. You, you, barren, I'm cursed of God. This is, the, this is the, the weight that they have. Not being able to conceive children is a sign of the curse of God, the disfavor of God. Did I do something wrong? And yet, if you have a, an innocent woman under this test, then she can conceive. Um, if she's innocent, then she's free from the curse, and that's demonstrated in that she will bear children. If the man is wrong after this ritual, he will be free from the guilt of false accusation. Why? He brought it before the priest. He didn't take care of it himself. Because then he'd also be guilty of murder, right? And we don't want that. So he'll be free from the guilt of false accusation. Um, the law anticipates or contemplates that the result of this ritual will be restoring harmony in the home. All right. I want to quit. This is weird. I mean, I, this is weird. It's weird to me. We don't, we don't pour water over books to in the, you know, whatever. We don't do that. But we're not in that culture. And I think a lot of times we have this view of kind of a cultural snobbery that goes on when we view these things. There's a very big theological point being made here. There's no magic here. You know, we talk about the trials of ordeal of the cultures around them. The fact that there's a test, that's where the similarity ends. There's no magic here. There's no cruel test here. It's a little unpleasant, drinking dust water. But it's not cruel. She still has function of her hands. She didn't have to go jump in a river because somebody else accused her in order to preserve her husband's honor to go kill herself. She didn't have to do that which some other cultures want you to do. 
it's physically a safe test. Um, but what is the crucial element in determining guilt or innocence? God. God. Specifically what? Yes, but and by what means? His word. It's the word of God that searches out what's hidden. What may have been done in the, in the dark with no witnesses. It's the word of God that, that penetrates the veil of secrecy that may be there. The word of God searches out the thoughts and intents of the heart. The picture is that nothing is hidden from God and his word will bring to light the secret things done in the dark. The husband is not to take it into his own hands. Sexual immorality is a spiritual issue and it impacts the whole camp. It's like a contagion. It's like leprosy. It's like disease. It's like dead bodies. Sexual impurity infects the whole... It's not just, it's not just her that it affects. It's the whole camp. And God deals with it in this passage this way. Um, All right. I think I made this point already, but I want to make it again. Is this chauvinistic? Both, both husband and wife are under the penalty of death for adultery, if it's proven. If there are two witnesses that, that will testify to it. Here we don't have that. But the logic here actually protects the wife from... Where'd, where'd Sarah go? The husband must bring her to the priest... And, and in doing, in having this passage, I wonder, this is an assumption on my part, so take it for what, for what it is. I wonder if there is an understanding of the Scripture that men are more prone to be jealous of these things than maybe women. I don't know, because I have a bunch of high school girls in my house, so it could be different. I don't know. But there's this test that actually protects the wife from cruel tests, from disappearing, and it puts it in the hands of God to discern what can't be discerned by evidence. All right. Uh, the other thing that this ritual teaches us is about sexual purity to the whole people of God. If leprosy defiles the camp, if disease, if disease and issues of blood defile the camp, if dead bodies defile the camp, sexual impurity defiles the camp. And this isn't an issue that we can give up on simply because we live in a difficult culture in which to maintain it. We don't abandon holiness in this area because we're 25 and should be having sex by now. <laughs> I had somebody say that to me decades ago, by the way. I'm 25. I should... Who says who? Says who? God doesn't give us a pass on the thoughts and intents of the heart because we're not hurting anybody by what we do in secret. It, it affects the whole camp. It affects the people of God. Holiness matters. What we put into our minds matters. These things come from the heart and defile a person. Jesus says, they not only defile the person, they defile the camp. Um, Romans, <clears throat> let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immoral immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Ephesians 5.3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. You want to know the will of God for our lives? Here it is. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, For this is the will of God. I don't know how much clearer it gets than that. <laughs> this is the will of God. Your sanctification. 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Why is that significant? Be holy, for I am holy. It hasn't changed. If we continue to act like those who don't know God, it may be because we don't. Mm -hmm. Philip says this, and I hate it every time he says it, but he's right. Every sin is an opportunity to show that you never knew Christ. Because why? The kindness of God leads us to repentance. It is His merciful gift, repentance. Why would we presume upon His grace and kindness? What an arrogant thing to do. Repentance is a kind gift of God. We should not presume upon His kindness. Belief and behavior go together. Faith and life go together. You cannot love God and live like a pagan. You must love Christ and live like a disciple. Holiness matters. It mattered to the camp. It matters to the people of God today. What we do in secret will be sought out by the Word of God, either to our judgment or to bring us to repentance. Stay at the foot of Christ. Stay at the foot of Christ. All right, what does this teach us about the work of Christ? Matthew and Luke work off of three things kind of in tandem. Jesus uh, heals a leper. Jesus heals a woman with an issue of blood. Jesus touches the daughter of the temple guy to, to bring her to life. Those three things are referenced in Numbers 5, right? To show what? He makes the unclean clean. If holiness is important because of how we are to live in the presence of God in the camp when he's in a tent in the middle of the, of the, of the people of Israel, how much more when he lives in the disciple? He's not made unclean by touching and healing us from our own battles with sexual impurity as His people. <clears throat> it's really easy to get caught up in the shame of wrestling with that stuff. I know we're all guys in here. It's really easy to get caught up in the shame of wrestling with that kind of stuff. Where, where it's just, well, this is just, this, I got to do this. I got I to deal with this. I gotta. It's easy to get into a habit. And habits that we form as single guys, as single people, they don't stop if you happen to get married. The habits of the heart are like a groove that, the wa that water continually will find its way to. It doesn't stop because you've got a wife in your bed. You still have to wrestle with the heart. You still have to wrestle with these things. Wrestle with them now. Beat them now. Conquer them now. And the only way to do that is not through moralism. By some guy in the front of the Sunday school class saying, don't do that. <laughs> the way you beat it is to have a greater love. And here's the greater love. He drank the cup of curse for us. Right? He takes the, curse, the cup of curses from us and says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not mine, but yours be done. He takes the cup of curses so that we could have the, his cup of blessing. He takes the wrath that he didn't deserve and drinks that cup for us. 
He takes it all in. He absorbs it. And he's not made cursed. He's not made unclean. He makes the unclean clean and invites us to pull our knees up under his table and eat the bread that he provides and the cup that he gives. The bread of satisfying us more than any other temporary thing. And the cup that he gives us is a cup of joy and celebration and remembrance of what he's done that we could not and cannot do for ourselves. Why would we go anywhere else? Everything else burns quickly like grass in a drought, but we must sit at his feet and be who we are in Christ. I know it's late. Let me pray and we'll, we'll be done. God, it is amazing to me again and again how even in these very strange passages, and this is probably one of the weirdest I've read, the grace of Christ is so prominent. Thank you for calling us to holiness and providing righteousness in which to work it out. Thank you for the gift that we have in Jesus. I pray that your spirit would drive us to holiness, that would drive our thoughts to be captive to the obedience of Christ. It's a weird culture we live in that prizes sin over holiness. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Make us different. And though we may be ridiculed for our purity, let us remember that we stand before the gaze of a holy God who loves us and gave His Son for us that we might look like Him when He returns because we will see Him as He is. We long for that day. We long for hearts that honor Him with self-control and accountability to the brothers and how we live our lives before You. We thank You for the grace that You give us when we fail. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank You. Thank you guys for being here. Is, I know you briefly touched on it. Is there